If you will, turn, your Bible, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16. We conclude this series of messages tonight, and it's been a journey for me as I studied, as I prayed, and tried to really understand what it was God wanted us to come away with this month as we build up to next weekend. Uh, seems that a lot of folks, I'll just tell you that ever since that I started trying to, this Back to the Basics series, it seems like one obstruction after another got in the way. I really hope that you will clear off next uh, Friday and Saturday and that you'll give it to the Lord. We begin reading tonight with the words of Jesus. If you will, why don't you stand to honor the reading of his word. Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19. If you have red print, this should be in red print in your Bible. Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Let's pray. Father, for the next few moments, I ask that you come into this place in such a manifest way that we cannot deny that you're here. I pray that you will speak words into our heart that are words of conviction and words of encouragement and words of drawing, words of renewal, words of revival. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We begin with a, with a passage of Scripture tonight that I quoted this morning. We, it was up on the screen. I'll, I'll build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You see, Jesus came to this world. Hopefully this will be a little unusual tonight, but Jesus came to this world. He preached about repentance. He preached about the kingdom of God. And he came, now as we read here, he came to establish his church. And he came, when he came to the earth, he came with the end in mind. He came that people who are estranged from God, estranged from God, people who are divorced from God, can find their way back to God and become his disciples. After Jesus spoke these words, he went around the countryside and he healed and he touched and he changed and he, and, and he brought faith to people. And then after he died, was buried, resurrected, and ascended, he, he was as good as his word. And he sent the Holy Spirit to us for our power, for our strength, for our companion, to be a comforter, to be a friend. And he did that. In the context of, if you want to turn there now, Acts chapter 2 is where the Holy Spirit actually came. As for the first time, the, the world was getting a glimpse of the church that Jesus had envisioned. And when I, I can sit down and read Acts chapter 2 all day long. It's one of the most stirring, it's, it's one of the most encouraging things that, that I can read because when I read chapter 2, I know that it's God's intent for the church. Now, people today will tell me, Brother Jerry, it can't be like that all the time. Well, you're right because we people are going to get in the way of God working all the time. But that doesn't mean he doesn't want it to be like that. That doesn't mean it's not possible. That generally means 
That generally means that we'll be like the, the church in Acts. They did good things sometimes. They did not so good things sometimes. But when you read the, the account of the church in Acts, you come away being encouraged. You come away being enlightened. As you watch the church go through its stages and you watch its growth, its maturity, you watch its focus. Paul picked up on that and was a, is a part of the Acts story. As you know, he was saved over there around chapter 9, and then he became such a missionary. He was such an enemy of the church, then he became such a missionary of the church that he wrote letters which constitute probably close to half the New Testament. One of the churches that he wrote to, was one of his earliest letters, if not the earliest, was his first letter to the church at Thessalonica. And he called, and he didn't. He gave them such a glowing report, talked to them in such ways that folks like Schofield, how many of you ever read a Schofield Bible? C.I. Schofield calls the church at Thessalonica the model church. And that might be our next series because I, I, I love to read First Thessalonians also. But here's what I'd like to say. We're hovering over this, and I have felt so compelled to this because of a personal goal, a personal fire that God put in my soul when he called me to preach. And that is to lead a church to be, become our, our growing church that is a New Testament church. Now, people say, well, we're a New Testament because we read it, we study it, we believe it, we try to emulate it. But here's the question, does the church of the 21st century in America, how does it stack up to that church in the first century in Acts? Unless you read a lot like your pastor does, or unless you hear a lot of people preach, you may not really be aware that the church in America is in trouble. Depending on who you read, between 60 to 90% of the churches in America are either plateaued, not reaching people, or they're in a decline. And a lot of the churches, a lot of those remaining 10 to 40% of the churches that are actually growing are growing by swapping sheep. Do you understand what I'm saying when I say that? As opposed to reaching people from the darkness. And I just want to say this to you. Attendance, commitment. Influence and money are only a tip of the iceberg. It's much deeper than that. In fact, I read a Christ, about a Christian executive this week who says, um, if the church was in a business, it might be time to file Chapter 11. Now, I don't know much about the, uh, about the bankruptcy law, so I decided that's why we have Internet. So this week I went and read up on that just a little bit. So just... Just hang with me a second. I'm headed somewhere. If a business gets in financial trouble, it has two choices. It can file Chapter 7. Actually, it may be 6. 7 or 6. Or it can file Chapter 11. Now, that Chapter 7 and 6, personal business, uh, total bankruptcy, that's where if you own a business and you file that chapter, you sell everything you have. And you close the doors, and you do no more business. Chapter 11, on the other hand, is if a, if a proprietor or the board or whomever feels like that they still have a viable business, but they've just gotten their liabilities out of balance to their, to their assets, so, so I read, that they can, 
But they can come up with a plan, approach the bankruptcy court, come up with a plan, and reorganize, and they have a plan to change the way that they're doing things so that they can become viable once again. This is nothing new to us in Jefferson County, is it? Because our county is right now in bankruptcy. But the one thing about being in that Chapter 11, you don't get to do business the way you've been doing business. Either you have a bankruptcy judge with his eye on what you're doing, or you have a trustee that he's appointed to make sure that you're following the plan. And the goal is to get back to be viable. That's the bankruptcy law. But can I just tell you, aside, just an observation for me after 60 years old. Most people who go into business and do well make bukus of money. They didn't go into business to make bukus of money. You know what they went into business for? Because she made great cakes. And so she opened herself a cake shop. Or he was a great mechanic. And it was a service that he could do to people, and it just got too, too much. And so he opened him a shop, and he began to make money. You see, the people who are really successful in business are people who are, who are getting in business for the other guy, and they're offering a service. And as long as you offer that service, money will take care of itself. The benefit will take care of itself. In fact, we've watched one business after another. When they got their eye on the bottom line instead of the service, the business dried up and went away. Can you make that? Do I have to insult your intelligence and make the application for a church? When I read about that in this bankruptcy with my mind set on the church, I was really dis- disturbed, depressed, and hurt at how many churches today are filing Chapter 7. Oh, they're not going to the bankruptcy court. But George Barna tells us between 2,500 and 3,000 churches every year shut the doors and walk away. Beyond that, churches that seem to be dying a slow death have a problem literally filing chapter 11 and reorganizing things and doing things a, a little different because they have to make the difficult choices. They have to ask the hard questions. And I'll just tell you, 2,500 to 3,000 churches a year, if we were not in such a church planting era where people are planting churches left and right, Christianity would be in much more dire straits than we are because so many churches, older churches, are struggling and closing their doors. Now, against that backdrop, some of you who are here Wednesday night, you knew what I was going to, what we were going to do, try to do tonight. I'd like to pose us a question tonight. This is not going to be a sermon. I want to look across. Everybody here has made a profession of faith. I want it just to kind of be a talk to let it kind of burn into us. Here's the question. If you had no experience with a modern-day church... If you'd never seen a church building, never been in a door, never sat in a Sunday school class or in what we call a worship service with a fine drummer and pianist and great music, and we just didn't have any of this. But all you were given was this book. And you were to establish a church just based on what you had in this book. 
Would you get this? I mean, think about it. The things that we think are so... I mean, if a church planner starts planning a church, what does he think he needs? Well, he's got to have a building, very first thing. Got to have a building. Well, then you got to have a, a sermon. You got to have a preacher. Then if people show up, they're going to have to hear you, so you're going to have to have a sound system. Then you're probably going to have to have a, a, a music guy to lead a couple songs. And, oh, you better not forget the nursery. And I we think those are the essential things, but here's the question. If all we had was this book to go on, what would be the essential parts that we have to have? Now, you know me. I think better when all, when all my outline starts with the same letter. And I've done that, but the letters, the words that I use are not near as important as the qualities that I have found in this book If we're going to be a biblical church, if we're going to recover biblical church, what do we need? Let me offer you four or five or so from the Scripture. Well, obviously, first of all, you need members. Number one. Are you with me, Dave? Thank you. We need members. Now, you can go back to Acts chapter 2. If you got chapter 2, you can see in verse 1 that they were all together in one place. Now, they didn't just start right there. They had been together for 10 days in the upper room. But if you're going to have a church, you're going to have to have some members. And they have to be saved members. Membership into a church it's not just for everybody. Anybody should be able to share in the fellowship and come to see what's going on. But only saved people can be part of a member of a church. And oh, by the way, Acts 2.1 says members. Acts 2 around verse 5 says that they probably should be spirit-filled if you're really going to have a biblical church. Why do they need to be spirit-filled, Brother Jerry? Well, in the case of the church in Acts... If we compare them to the church today, think about it. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John healed somebody. They got arrested, so they're in jail. So now they got a police record. And what did they do when they came back from being arrested and having a police record? The personnel committee didn't meet and fire them because they had a police record. You know what they did? They got together with them and prayed because everybody being spirit-filled, everybody being saved, had the same idea. You go, Brother Jeff, it's a silly illustration. Okay. Well, how about chapter 5? Acts 5. Acts chapter 5, the widows, the true widows. Did you know that the Bible says that widows have to be validated to receive ministry from the church? You can go find it. It's in the pastoral epistles. But the true widows were being overlooked in the daily ministration, the daily ministry of the church. And this was life and death for those widows. And so they brought the complaint to the pastors. They didn't tell the pastors what they had to do. They brought it to their elders, to the people who were leading the church. And because they were spirit-filled, because they were saved, they trusted their leadership. And their leadership came back and said, here's what we need to do. We're not going to change what God's called us to do. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to get seven men. We're going to get Van. We're going to get Gary. We're going to get Troy. We're going to get, well, I understand that's not their names, but you understand understand the principle there. They named seven men who picked, and everybody was in agreement. And, And the Bible says, and because of that, 
the church of God flourished. The word of God went forward. If you're going to have a Bible church, it's going to have to start with the members who are A, saved, and B, spirit-filled. The second thing that I, that I think we find in the... Uh, that we, that we find in the, uh, um, in the Scripture that we need is we need to understand our mandate. We under, need to understand our mandate. Now, what is, that's a big word. That's one of those that I don't really like, but I'm going to use it because it's not a better word. But if you're just working from the Bible, de- developing a church, starting a church, not from tradition, that mandate is love. The mandate is love. Now, everybody goes, yeah, finally you're getting to something I can get my hands around. We've got to love each other. Well, that's true. But part of what's going on in the church today is we've kind of gotten our love out of order. When Jesus spoke, they said, what's the greatest commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, he got to that, but that's numbers two. The first one was love, the, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. I, I wonder today if one of the things that's going on in the dying church in America is we've got our love kind of wrapped around, kind of turned around instead of loving God with all that we are and then loving our neighbor as ourselves. I wonder if we love, we try to love one another like John Chapter 33 says, says, a new commandment I give you, you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And it is in this way that the world will know you are my disciples. I just submit to you that when we love one another more than we love God, we've gotten things out of balance. Can you hear what I'm saying? If we're going to be a biblical church, the starting point of our love is to, the mandate is to love God with all our hearts, to love one another as Christ loved us. And how, how did he love us? He loved us enough to die. And then over John 15, he says, Greater love hath no man than this. Then you lay down your life for your friends. Can I, uh, you want to look at your neighbor and say, I'd die for you? Uh, you I didn't see a whole take, bunch of takers there. But that's the love he's talking about. And that is only birth in the love when we love God, when we get that relationship right. And by the way, by the way, Jesus calls that first love. When he wrote, when he, when he uh, dictated to John on the Isle of Patmos, he talked about them losing their and leaving their first love. What was their first love? You can go to Acts chapter 19. When the gospel came to the church at Ephesus. They fell so in love with God that they gathered and they burned the books of their past, the magical books, and they were worth, listen to this, 50,000 pieces of silver. They were ready to abandon everything of their old life because they had their first love in order. When they have your first love in order, all of a sudden it's not so hard to love a person like Michael Pickens. Do you understand what I'm trying to convey here? If we're going to recover biblical church, we have to have our love, our mandate to love God first, love our brothers and sisters like he loved us, and love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. That's what he's, if, if we're going to be and recover the church, we have, to, we have to have all of this in order. Well, okay, I don't, I don't want to run around here all night long. People got places to go, but I want to, I want to communicate this, is that, if we're going to have a church and we have nothing to go on but this, we're going to have members 
that are saved and spirit-filled, we have a mandate to love God first, love our brothers and sisters as he loved us, and love our neighbors as ourselves. And then, guess what? We do have to get together. We have to meet, okay? We have to meet. Now, you can, in Acts chapter 2, it gives us very clearly that they met, and they met day by day. Yes, they did meet in the temple, so there was a big building, but they also met in homes. And you know why that is? It's because they wanted to live life together. They understood that, that this belief system that, that, that Jesus had called them to was not something that they would put on on Sunday or, or put on on Wednesday. It was something that they lived day in and day out. It was something that they, that they struggled with, something that they had to learn how to do. They were called to meet. And by the way, when they met, when they met, it wasn't just a howdy-doody. When they really met, they met and focused on the body and the blood of Jesus. Most of the time they got together, they would, they would celebrate communion at some point. They would celebrate the Lord's Supper. He said, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. This is my body. This is my blood. Remember, have you ever thought about why they did that, what was so important to them? Hopefully I can paint you a picture here. Can you imagine what they were witness to? Jesus was arrested right in front of them. Jesus was, had his mock trial right in front of them. Jesus had that crown of thorns mashed down on his head where his, when he thought he couldn't bleed anymore, he bled some more. They, right in front of them, he was scourged right in front of them. He was nailed to the cross right in front of them. It was a bloody mess. And Jesus said, guess what? Less than 24 hours, he said, I'm doing this for you. This is for you. When they met it wasn't just high-fiving each other. It was to focus on the body and the blood of Jesus. You can find it here because it tells, it tells us in Acts chapter 2. It says uh, um, that they broke bread. They received food gladly. They had favor with the people. They, everybody who believed had things together. They were dedicated, devoted like we talked this morning to teaching and fellowship and rest. You see, when they got together, it was a holy time. I fear, this is a personal fear of mine, and this is not Scripture, this is just my personal fear. I fear that the holiness of our gathering has kind of gone out the wayside with what we call fellowship. We should fellowship. We should love one another. We've already said that. But when we come into him, his presence as a body, our focus should be on him. If we're going to recover a biblical church, we have to do it the way that he envisioned it done. And he desires for us to do it. So if we continue to look in our book, what makes this biblical church? Well, we talked about it's got to have members. It's got to have members saved and spirit-filled. We have to have um, this mandate has to be front and center that we love him first. We love our, our brothers and sisters, and we love our neighbors as ourselves. We have to commit to meeting together. Does it disturb anybody besides me? And don't say anything. Does it disturb anybody besides me? The difference in our attendance on Sunday morning and Sunday night. Does it disturb anybody besides me? Our difference in our attendance on Sunday night and Wednesday night. You know, actually, when you add uh, the children's ministry that, that uh, Kathy and Dana head up back there, we probably have more on campus on Wednesday night than we have on Sunday night. 
We're to meet together. And then the next thing that you'll discover as you get into this book about a church is what we talked about this morning, motivation. Motivation. Their motivation was to get the word out. Did you hear that? Their motivation was simply to get the message out. And you know what's the truth? They did it in part, right? In Acts 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, they did it in part. We are told that 3,000 were saved at Pentecost. Historians tell us by the time they got to Acts chapter 6, where the deacon guys were being appointed, we are told by that time they probably had 20,000 people in the church. So it is true that they were getting the message out, but they were only getting it out in Jerusalem. You see, it had been partial obedience. It's my personal opinion that the very reason Stephen had to be stoned was the disobedience of the church at Jerusalem. Because it was only when that persecution began with the stoning of Stephen that they began to be dispersed. That's why you find in other places of the New Testament they're called people of the the dispersion. Because as they were dispersed, they continued to get the message out. A biblical church is a church that goes to great ends to get the message out. What are we doing to get it out? Well, land sakes, folks, last year we've seen God do some things wonderful in our our congregation. We're still not doing all we should do. Faith riders, every time they go somewhere, every time they do something, every time they encounter somebody, they're sharing the message. We're, our, our outreach teams, you know, this has been phenomenal. We've, we've uh, um, only had our hoodoo cards out for a while. And we've already made a number of visits, had some professions of faith, some more that we'll probably get to see this week. It's a matter of our focus. It's a matter of trying to get, because we need the church. If we are here, the church realizes, and the church here realized that if they don't get the word out, People are going to die and go to hell. And that was their motivation. They always tried to get the message out. The truth truth is, is that the church needs a motivation and needs to be on mission. And if the church is not on mission... Quite likely, we're not the church. It's kind of like the military. The military has a mission. I've been around military bases a lot, never served. We have many in our congregation who have served, but I think they would back this up. From what I've seen at all the bases, I've been around every day our military has a mission. It can be a wartime mission or it can be a peacetime mission, but they always have a mission, something they are there to accomplish. The church of the living God is the same way have a mission of rescuing, you like those old hymns, rescuing the perishing and caring for the dying, reaching the lost. He who winneth souls is wise. Go therefore and, and reach all nation. You shall be my witnesses. It's our call. And it is a call, I hate to say that in large measure, is unanswered. And yet it's a part of the biblical church. As I continue and, and I look here in, in Acts chapter 2 and I think about how they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, I think of their, number five, ministry. Their ministry. Their ministry was to train 
leaders. You know one of the things in the church today, the average church today, we are far more interested in recruiting leaders than we are training and developing leaders. Because, you see, training and developing leaders and making disciples requires a a deep commitment. It requires a deep commitment of time. Making disciples of new people when they come to faith, that's what we're called to do. It's it's a part of the the biblical church. Being a disciple is not an automatic action. And it goes back to that statement that Francis Chan made that I mentioned this morning, that so many people uh, come to church and, and treat it more like a movie than a gym. You see, God calls each one of us to be his disciple. It's my personal, if you've read my book, it's my personal belief that you have to become a disciple before you can attain the status of being called a Christian. In Acts 11, they were called Christians because of how much like Jesus they were. We are called to do things like he did them, to go like he went. There is one last thing here, and we'll be done. I struggled for what word to use. I wanted to use power. I wanted to use authority. I wanted to, as I search the scripture, but I'm going to use the word might because it fits with my outline. The might of the church, the power of the church, the strength of the church, the authority of the church. When, when, I, read, when I read about what this ragtag group of followers of Christ accomplished, you have to understand that they had power, that they had might. And I'm thinking that probably that is what's short-circuiting the average Americanized church. Where is it that the church should get her ability to fulfill what God wants her to be? Where is it? The might of the church, the strength of the church, the power of the church, it will never be found in doing activities better than everybody else does. Can I just tell you this? The world can one-up us. It don't matter what we do. The world, they got more resources, uh, more help. We cannot do enough activities to outdo the world. And it's time we stop trying. No, we not, I didn't say we should not do activities. We should do activities. We should, as Kathy said this morning, said it very well. We might not be on campus, but we're still sharing Jesus with these boys and girls that are, are there. But you see, folks, we can try it in our own power. We can, we can do it, try to do it on our own means. We can try to get every little program right. We can try everything that somebody else is doing, and we can try to get it right. But you know what the truth is? We will never have enough power on our own. We need the power of a holy God. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, when we get the power of the Holy Spirit, when we get our lives clean, we quit trying to figure it out. They quit trying to figure it out because they had no resources to go from. They had no pile of money to put in things. They had no screens and no projectors. They had no buildings 
Our sound systems are good. Well, they may have had a guitar, but they didn't have a piano. They had to lean entirely on the leading of the Lord. You know what? I'm afraid that many times that we depend on human, human power. And when you depend on what human power can get, you'll, you'll get exactly what human power can give. How video I want you to see. You see, when we try to control and power the church, it's work. When we try to power things, it's work. And people get fatigued and they get... Has anybody ever gotten fatigued doing God's work? Ostensibly doing God's work. When we surrender to Him and we let Him take control, when He begins to, when he begins to power it, it almost gets fun. Mentioned to the crowd Wednesday night a little video entitled The Little Red Tractor. Let's watch and let's learn. The Big Red Tractor and the Little Village. Once upon a time in a little field in a happy little village lived a big red tractor. Every morning during plowing season, the village people, no, not those village people, <laughs> would come out and start the red tractor. Everyone loved the tractor and the powerful noises it would make. They would cheer for the big red tractor because he would help them through plowing season. The people worked together to move the tractor. Half of the villagers would push from behind while the other half would pull. They had been doing it this way for many generations. Some days they moved the tractor 10 feet. Some days they moved it 20. They did this for three whole months every year. Because of their hard work, the villagers always managed to plow the field just in time to plant and just before the rainy season. The rains would come to water the field. Then the sun would come out to make the crops grow. And then the people would come out and harvest all the new crops. It was just enough food to feed the entire village. One day, Farmer Dave was cleaning out his attic. To his surprise, he found an old book tucked beneath his great-grandpa's belongings. It was the owner's manual to the big red tractor. This book told about how the tractor was made and all the great things it could do. Farmer Dave studied the book all night. He was shocked by what he was reading. According to the book, if the big red tractor was running properly, it could plow the whole field in just one day. Early the next morning, Farmer Dave gathered the villagers to tell them the good news. But nobody believed him. There's no way that tractor can move on its own, some said. One lady said, it sounds like you're reading a fairy tale. The people laughed at him. This made Farmer Dave very sad. This didn't stop Farmer Dave from believing what he read. Every night, while the other villagers were asleep, Farmer Dave spent time repairing the big red tractor. One night, Farmer Dave fixed the tractor completely. He jumped on the tractor and had so much fun driving it, he ended up plowing the whole field in one night. The next morning, the villagers woke up and were in shock. The whole field had been plowed 
It's a miracle, one man said. Maybe aliens came down, said an old woman. No, look over there, a little boy shouted. It was Farmer Dave sleeping on a tractor. It was then that people shouted, He was right. The tractor book is true. The villagers ended up plowing many fields that year and harvesting way more food than they could ever eat. They had so many leftover boxes of food that they began taking the boxes to other villages where food was scarce. The big red tractor and his little village soon became famous throughout the land. They became known as the most generous and life-giving people in the whole wide world. Most generous and life-giving people. The big red tractor and the little The most generous and life-giving people in the whole wide world. Does that appeal to anybody? The moral of this story to me is that when we try to do church, we try to manhandle it and do it in our own strengths instead of trusting God. We'll get what we can, what we can do. But if we could come to the place where we surrender to him and let him power the tractor, and we could just be along for the ride to drive it. That sounds like fun. Let's pray together.